Welcome to episode 30 of Sharing Life Lessons. This is the final episode of season 3. Together, we are creating a library of stories. I am your host Hamida and I want to bring you stories because stories inspire, stories teach and stories heal. My dear listeners, I had committed to you that I will bring you a very special guest for the final episode of the third season for Sharing Life Lessons. I have lived up to my commitment. Our guest for today is my multifaceted friend. We will hear about all of her very many accomplishments during my conversation with her today. I first met her almost a decade ago when she was the keynote speaker at a diversity event at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where I happened to be working at the time. There she was, standing proudly on stage with two or three of her Paralympic medals. Yes, listeners, she was on the U.S. ski racing Paralympic team and she won three medals for our country. I also remember another thing. She was wearing a very pretty skirt and the skirt was short enough to show her one shiny prosthetic leg. She calls herself the one-legged woman. She motivated me then with her rivetingly motivating speech. She continues to motivate, motivate me even now. I am delighted to be friends with her, and I'm delighted to have her on as our guest for today. Everyone, please welcome Bonnie St. John. Hey, Bonnie. Thank you for being on the show. It is such a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. I've been asking you for a long time to be a guest, and I am so happy that we finally together found the time to do this. Oh, this is terrific. And uh, it was fun catching up with you before we started the interview. We've been friends for a long time. And uh, with the quarantine and everything, I'm not seeing people as the way I used to. So it's wonderful to be able to touch base. And I'm so happy that you're connecting me with your audience. Oh, I'm really, really happy you are a guest today. So Bonnie, tell us something about yourself, please. Well, it's a crazy story. My life is a really crazy story. I I uh, was born with a birth defect that one of the, the growth was stunted in my right leg. It just didn't, it looked normal when I was born, but it just didn't grow and went on to have my leg amputated when I was five years old and went on to go to the Paralympics as a skier, which is also a crazy story because I grew up in San Diego where there's no snow. My family had no money. It's when people go say, oh, it must be hard to ski on one leg. It's really hard to ski with no money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm black. I'm actually the first African-American to win a Winter Olympic or Paralympic medal. It, it is a story of overcoming a lot of obstacles in order to uh, be an international ski racer. But I also went to Harvard and worked on Wall Street, worked in the White House in the Clinton administration, and was a Rhodes Scholar, studied at Oxford. Actually, here's an interesting way to look at it is to say that I've been able to be at world-class levels in a lot of different arenas. So in sports at world-class levels, as a Rhodes Scholar at academic Oxford and Harvard, and then to work in the White House and be amidst world leaders in government. And so I've been able to see a lot of world-class leaders, high achievers in different areas. And most people only work in one of those areas. So to cut across all of those has been an interesting life. And what I would say is that people say, how do you do that? Most people don't do that. You have to be willing to look stupid. 
most people don't leave what they're really good at and go into another area because mm -hmm. they, they are comfortable being the best. Mm -hmm. And so to move from sports to the White House, I, I had to mess things up and to move from Harvard to Oxford even, it was, there were things that I messed up because I didn't know and I didn't understand. And one of the things about having achieved in so many different areas is that you have to be willing to start over. Yep. So that's the headlines on uh, what my life looks like. Oh, and I've written a number of books. I, I think you told me I was supposed to say that too. Yes. <laughs> I, and, and if you weren't going to, I was going to, because after all of this, you are currently a very successful entrepreneur with your own business and many books that you've written. So the most recent one is Micro Resilience. And uh, that's been exciting because it's been published in Chinese and Japanese. It was republished in England, which means they change all the spellings, right? Yeah, <laughs> and true. then that version had a special printing in India uh, and also in New Zealand and Australia and all the Commonwealth countries. And out of the seven books, I think I've written seven books, that's the one that's gone really global. And that's been exciting uh, as we've done book tours in different countries as well. So it's been an exciting journey. But I've, but I've written books on women's leadership. I wrote Live Your Joy, which is about staying positive, an important thing to do right now that we're all in quarantine. I was there for your roadshow and book signing for Micro Resilience, and I read that book, and it has helped me in so many different ways. Especially now, right? Now that we're all taxed with a lot of changes in our routine, the subtitle is Minor Shifts for Major Boosts in Focus, Drive, and Energy. And I know, even for me, and I've used these tools, I use the research, but being in quarantine is a lot of challenge to our focus, drive, and energy. And so micro resilience is little hacks for that. And, and now I lead Blue Circle Leadership, my company. You can go to bluecircleleadership.com to check out what we do. But I, I get to take all of those experiences we talked about and use it to help companies. And that means the people inside companies to be able to grow in their leadership abilities. We do a lot of women's leadership programs, multicultural leadership programs, and not just helping the women and the multicultural people, but helping their sponsors, helping a lot of white males who are trying to help them and, and grow diverse companies, grow strong companies. So it's a very exciting time. The world has gone kind of crazy, but we are at the forefront of, of helping the world deal with what is. That's a great service you're doing to corporate America. And for the listeners, I will have all of these links to Bonnie's company and her books in my show notes. So in case you want to read them, then you'll find all the information there. Bonnie, moving on, I know we want to do this a little differently for you. Normally, my guests talk about their story and then say, this is the life lesson I want to share from this story. But we want to turn this around for you. We want to talk about the life lesson first that you want to share with the listeners and then back it up with the story. So tell us, what is the life lesson that you want to share? Well, one of the profound stories that I find myself telling a lot is, is a, about being at the Paralympics. When I competed in the Paralympics, I was on the U.S. team, and I was the third-ranked one-legged woman on the team, which was good because they only took three one-legged women on the team. So as the third ranked, I just barely made it on the team. And I had been training for years. And I said I had to raise money. I had to move away from San Diego, move away from my family. It wasn't like my family could pick up and take me on the road training. I really had to be entrepreneurial and, and make my own way to do it. And uh, so I was so thrilled just to qualify for the U.S. team, have my team jacket and be ready. 
and you wouldn't believe this, but my mother had never seen me in a ski race at that point. Again, she was a single mom with three kids. She was a school teacher and then later a principal, but she couldn't just pack up and go follow me on the circuit. She had never seen me in a race, but she came with me to the Paralympics in Innsbruck, Austria. And it was so exciting. I guess the other thing I should tell you about my mother, it's crazy. My mother, God rest her soul. My mother passed away a number of years ago, but she was an educator. She was a teacher, but she was not somebody who really got it about sports. Mm -hmm. She was not a real sports fan. In fact, I mean, she might see a jogger go down the street and say, can't they do something constructive? She just didn't get it. So she comes to Innsbruck, Austria. I'm on the US team. There's all the flags, all the hoopla, all the excitement of international competition, over 500 athletes, all different countries. It's amazing. So she's starting to get excited. She's starting to see this is pretty cool. So the slalom race is first. The slalom is the really tight turns around the red and blue poles for anyone who doesn't ski. And I come down the first run of the slalom and the times are posted and my time is number one in the world. So it's an upset. Nobody expected me to be my teammates, never mind everybody else. But I mm -hmm. had trained all summer on a glacier. I had been training with two-legged skiers. I had really pushed myself and, and raised the bar. So That's uh, amazing. Thank you. So here I was in first place after the first run, but it takes two runs combined time to actually get the medal. So I have to go back up to the top and do it again. Meanwhile, my mother is going berserk. She's like, jogging, I don't understand, but winning, I like this. You know? <laughs> my brother actually rolled her in the snow to cool her off. <laughs> so she was making me nervous. I had to get out of there. So I went back up to the top. I'm waiting my turn to go down. So a second run, two other women went down first before me, and they radioed up from the bottom that these women were crashing, that all the women going before me were crashing. Now, in skiing, you never ski the same run twice. So there's two runs in the slalom race, but they're different courses because the snow gets all chewed up in the first course. So they set a new course for the second run and it's different. It's entirely different. Mm -hmm. it's, if you don't ski, people don't realize that. If you run the hundred yard dash, it's always the same, <laughs> but it, this is completely different. So in this second run, there's this dangerous icy spot and a lot of the women are falling. So I'm standing there waiting my turn and I'm thinking I don't have to do you know, any heroics. I don't have to go all out to try to beat everybody. I need to stay standing and I can win this. Mm -hmm. So I get in the starting gate, the race officials count down five, four, three, two, one, I break the timing one. I'm hitting the red and blue poles. I can't even hear all the people cheering for me. You know, actually it's funny thinking about the people cheering for me, the black skiers, the national brotherhood of skiers had sponsored me. So 32 members of the national brotherhood of skiers came to cheer me on in Innsbruck, Austria. Wow. What I just said is 32 Black people were on a hill in the Alps screaming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can actually picture what that look, just, would be looking like. I even stand, sounding like. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my teammate said, Bonnie, you have a really big family. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. Because they had sponsored me they had hosted me in different towns when I had to, to go to different ski races. They had given me ski clothes. I grew up in San Diego. I didn't have a lot of clothes for winter weather. They gave me clothes. They passed the hat to help defray my training expenses. It was like family. In fact, one of the women from the National Brotherhood of Skiers was one of my bridesmaids when I got I, That kind of support was so important. But anyway, so I'm in this second run going for the gold. I was in first place and I'm going down the hill and I get to where I can see the finish line, and that's when I crashed. I slipped on the ice, and I fell. 
And I was so devastated. I went from being number one in the world to sitting on my rear end in the snow. And I think I lost. At that moment, you can just give up, right? You can give up and totally get out of the race. But my training was always to finish the race, even when you don't think you're doing well. So grabbed my equipment, got over the finish line. And when the dust cleared, it turned out that most of the top women fell down and got up again. And so my time was still comparable. I won the bronze medal in that race. So I got to stand on the winner's podium. Uh, I have the US flag waving behind me. My mother was crying in the snow, but it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gotten up and finished instead of giving up, getting up, right? And, and keep going. Yeah. Now the crazy part of that story is the woman who won the gold medal in that race, I had beaten her in the first run. I beat everybody in the first run. Mm -hmm. So when nothing went wrong, I was the best slalom skier. When everybody was falling and getting up, she won the gold. I won the bronze. Now, it wasn't that she didn't fall. You might think, oh, well, she didn't fall. That's why she did better. No, she also fell. So how did she win? She couldn't ski faster than I did. She got up faster than I did. Mm -hmm. I, I was actually quoted on a Starbucks cup. They were doing a campaign to quote real people. And uh, 13 million Starbucks cups had me quoted saying, people fall down, winners get up. But sometimes the winner is just the person who gets up the fastest. I think at the times that we're in, the crazy times that we're in with protests in the street and we're in quarantine and there's a pandemic going on, this is such an important message is that it's, things are going to go wrong. It's not that we can prevent everything from going wrong. Things are going to go wrong. But how do we pick ourselves up? And, and if we can pick ourselves up a little faster, that does make a difference. You can't always do it. I don't want to tell everybody, oh, you got to just pick yourself up in a second. But to the extent that we can not wallow in it, not stay down, but to, to get up and to help each other get back up and keep going, it it's helps you to win. That is an incredible life lesson. Everyone can fall, but it's the falling and getting up again. Real winners just get up and maybe get up faster if you can. Uh, love that. Bonnie, thank you for sharing that. So tell us more. It's interesting. Resilience is like my middle name. And when people think of the one-legged black skier from San Diego, resilience is, comes to mind. And because of that, because it is so central to my life story, I've ended up researching it a lot. But, but what happened at the Paralympics and the research, that came later. And earlier in my life, I just had to try to learn to be resilient. So I mentioned my leg was amputated when I was five years old. I had to learn how to walk all over again. I, I had to do this therapy where I pushed with my stump after it was amputated on a scale. They put a scale on a bunch of books, actually it was telephone books, which we don't have anymore. <laughs> you mean the yellow pages? <laughs> the yellow pages. But anyway, so I had to push on the scale with my stump that was amputated. And I remember the nurse would say, Bonnie, three pounds isn't enough. Push, let's see, five pounds to toughen it up enough that I could stand on it so I could walk on a prosthesis. You've seen me walk on my prosthesis. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was so hard, but she kept cheering me on and, and pushing me and, and teaching me to get through the tough stuff. And that's what a lot of us are doing now is we've got to get through the tough stuff, whatever it is, working from home, our kids being out of school and companies uh, losing clients or having to change the way we do business. And there's a lot of pushing through the tough stuff that everybody's doing right now. And so I had to learn that at the age of five. So I, I went on, I, I went to school and kids picked on me at school. I had to deal with that. 
because I wouldn't, I got a wooden leg, wooden leg, and I couldn't keep up. Sometimes I would read a book on the playground because I couldn't do the hopscotch and the jump rope that all the other girls were doing. But then a friend of mine in high school invited me to go skiing with her family over Christmas vacation. So we're living in San Diego. This was actually at a time when I was bused across town. So for integration, I lived on the poor side of town in National City, and I took a bus all the way across town. Actually, it took two buses or three buses to get to La Jolla to go to school with Barbara Warmath. Her family went skiing every year for, for several times during the winter, so she invited me to go with her family. I remember she gave me a coupon that she made out of notebook paper that said one week of skiing she gave me for my birthday. So That's had- so sweet. Yeah. And and actually, it's amazing because she's white. I'm black. She was on the tennis team at school. I was exempt from PE because I'd had another surgery in high school on my leg. She lived on the rich side of town. I lived on the wrong side of the tracks. But she turned to her black one-legged friend from the wrong side of the tracks and said, hey, let's go skiing. I mean, she's an amazing human being. And I think, again, this is an important message for right now is for us to have unity. There are Mm -hmm. so many forces telling us to hate the people who are different than us. And in corporate America, we talk a lot about how diversity makes us stronger. And literally, Barb Warmath asking me to go skiing with her, despite our differences, despite the fact that it wasn't easy for her to take me skiing, she was a good skier. She could go all over the mountain. She was going to have to stay on the bunny hill with me, and and I was going to fall down, fall down, fall down. It wasn't going to be the funnest vacation for her, but she embraced me and my differences and said, let's go skiing. And that made the U.S. team more competitive, her reaching out across differences. If I hadn't been on the team that year, we would have won fewer medals. Not only did I win the bronze in the slalom, I went on to win uh, bronze in the giant slalom and then silver for overall performance. So three medals that the U.S. would not have had if I wasn't there. Barbara Warmath reached out across differences, which wasn't easy for her to do. And that made us more competitive. I don't think Barbara even knew what this one act of hers is going to result into, but she still did it. It's not like she was attached to the outcome. She just wanted to reach out across the lines and bring you with her. It's just the kind of person she was. Later, she and her whole family lived in a camp that was helping to resettle refugees in the U.S. Political, I don't know if it was political, all kinds of refugees would come and they would stay in this camp and they would help them get language skills, and get ready to be resettled in the U.S. And her family, this is what, this is the kind of person she is. She was in the Peace Corps. She's this kind of of person. I I was visiting her in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and she has uh, several children. I was telling her children what a difference their mother made in my life. And she was saying, what's the big deal? I just, I invited you to go skiing. I just thought it would be fun. That's the kind of person she is. And then this one act of kindness that anyone can do, you don't know how big a difference that's going to make in someone else's life. The ripple right? effects so, just so for, yeah, for her, it's nothing. But for you, it was everything. I have to tell you too, is that story gives me optimism and hope about our country and our world, that when we come together, we are stronger. When we don't create mistrust and hatred across differences, but really come together, it makes us stronger. At the same time, I just want to share, because... People look at me and they think, oh, you went to Harvard, you went to Oxford, you've never faced racism. I'm a light-skinned brown woman. Everybody loves me. I just want to share, just because in these times we're in, there's so much uh, clashing and difference. My uncle, my father's brother, 
told me to my face that he didn't want to know me or to be in touch with me and he didn't want his children to ever meet me simply because I'm black. So my, sorry, I guess the precursor there is you have to know my father is white, my mother is black. So okay. my father's brother is white. Okay. And I had met him at, my father died when I was 12 and I had met him at my father's funeral. But later, so many years later in the early 2000s, I had moved to New York and he lives outside of New York City and wanted to get in touch with him and reached out to him and was told, no, you're black. And it doesn't matter that I was in the Olympics. It doesn't matter I worked in the White House. It doesn't matter, you know, how much I've achieved. He's saying to me, I don't want anything to do with you. I think this is so important to say in this world when we're, we're talking about racial issues more than we have for many years, you don't always know what other people have faced. And I don't know what you faced being uh, Indian in America. You've probably faced some terrible racist things as well. My brother, I started talking to my brother about it and realized he's been stopped by the police and had a gun put to his head a lot more than I had realized. I knew about one time when that had happened, but he said, no, Bonnie, this has happened like seven or eight times. I, I think it's good for us to be having more open conversations about this because we tended to try to be polite and just hide it all. Mm -hmm. But when we really reach out and have deeper understanding, I, I think we can get further. And I think your, your life lesson about falling down and then having the courage to get up, I guess in Black Life Matters, that probably is such a good life lesson, but I think you can relate it very well to it. So tell us, how can we use this lesson well, right now? It's interesting because politically correct was an attempt to say, be polite, right? Let's try to be polite. And I think that's still important, but it only gets you so far because once you've had a collision and we're having these at our in our families over holidays or with our friends in the community. Right now, just where I live, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask in the pandemic can be a source of friction for people, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you are having, we call it an identity collision, when you're having a problem or friction because of differences in who you are, politically correct doesn't give you any guidance. And so one of the things our company is doing is teaching people methods for how do you turn that kind of collision or friction into an opportunity to go deeper? And, and politically correct is sort of like muzzles you, like says, well, just be polite. And so people are like, oh, I can't say anything. I better just like back slowly away. <laughs> and, and that's not going to help us build deeper relationships. And so how do you get, use that friction as an opportunity to go deeper? An example is so a woman at a law firm walks into a room and overhears several guys making an off-color joke about women, right? She could be offended in that moment. And so she's having a collision to her identity, but she could blast those guys and say, you guys are terrible. I can't believe you're doing this. What a bunch of jerks. And then they're going to have an identity collision. You know, so somebody in that room could be thinking, hey, wait a minute. I didn't even tell the joke. I'm just sitting here. I've mentored women. I have daughters. I respect women. This isn't fair. And so both of them could feel like they're offended. There is an attack on their identity, both the woman and the man, you know, and so how do we flip that around? So instead of her coming into that room and blasting them and saying, you guys are jerks, how could she have used that as an opportunity to say, hey, we're all working this law firm together. We're, we have a mission here. We're doing important work in this world. What if a female client had come in and overheard this joke? Wouldn't that undermine all of our ability to be effective? So instead of blasting them, looking for common ground, building. And so we teach methods to, to do that, to use it as an opportunity to go deeper. 
there was the first woman Thunderbird pilot, Nicole Malakowski, talked mm-hmm. about how she understood that when she came in as a fighter pilot, it changed the culture. And she understood there was a sense of loss for them, that the, the boys, the band of boys culture, that they had to change. And so she had challenges, they had challenges. How can we create uh, commonality with that as opposed to just friction? And I know your firm goes to various corporations to help senior management and leaders actually grapple with this dichotomy that is going on right now. So I want to ask you, do you say something different to the white leaders versus something else to the black leaders? You think they all have the same responsibilities or they have different responsibilities? What a great question. Teaching the the methodology like identity collision we tend to teach that to everybody, to groups of leaders. And especially it's important for leaders to be setting the culture, right? So when they understand a methodology of of what do we do, they have a way of leading people to do that's really helpful. I think when you talk about the steps to deal with this kind of conflict, you're asking people to pause and, and be patient and approach it a different way. Black people will say, I have been taking a deep breath for so long, I'm hyperventilating. And so you, you do have different perspectives, but I think you can use a shared methodology to move forward. And the resilience piece that we talked about, we mentioned I wrote a whole book on resilience. And so that's an important topic now. Those are two of the things that I think we're getting asked to do a lot right now in corporate America is enable leaders to create a culture of resilience by using evidence-based ways of giving people tools to be more resilient in these crazy times. So resilience and and some of the courageous humility is one way to to title the the identity collisions work we're doing. This is also great. Thank you for sharing all of that because um, not only are you talking about resilience, but you also spoke about how to be resilient together because this is the time to come together. Bonnie, our new tagline for this podcast is together we are creating a library of stories. And I think your story about your race is going to stick with the listeners for quite a while. And your life lesson was great. I want to ask you, do you have a final message for the listeners before we end? I think repeating the, it's not about whether you fell down, it's how fast you can get back up that helps. And sometimes you can't always get up fast. Sometimes I I was abused as a child and you can't just say, Bonnie, just pick yourself up. Or, you know, I had to do some work and it, and it took time. So people fall down in a number of different ways. Sometimes having a physical disability is a very visible way. Being abused as a child, nobody can see that when they look at me. We, We have things that knock us down. We can get back up. Sometimes if we can get back up a little faster, it's gonna make a big difference. And I think when we have a community of champions helping each other, that helps everybody to get up faster too. That's a great message to leave the listeners with. Bonnie, I wanna thank you again for being on the show. I always love talking to you. And this was a great discussion, thank you. Thank you, you have truly created a community of champions to help one another. It's such a time as this is so important. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed listening to Bonnie as much as I enjoyed talking to her. I always enjoy talking to her. I also hope that you felt motivated from everything that you heard today. So over to my top three key takeaways from everything that Bonnie shared with us. Here are my key takeaways. The first one is a bit unusual. It may not be a key takeaway for many, 
But for me, it is because I totally resonated with it. You know how when she said she achieved so much in different areas of life, such as she was um, the best skier, and then she was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and then she moved to the Clinton administration, all very different things. And then people asked her how she did it. And she said, you have to be willing to look stupid. And I completely resonated with that because up until now, I have only successfully worked in the financial industry. I've never podcasted. But it was my willingness to look stupid in the first few episodes of my podcast till I got the hang of it, which has allowed me to get to episode 30 and I've enjoyed every single minute of it. The second key takeaway for me is, Bonnie said in the race of life, everyone could fall. But winners are those who get themselves up the fastest. That is an incredible life lesson. And lastly, when we come together, we are stronger. If you see someone else fall in and you help them to get back up, now that is priceless. This brings us to the end of this episode. I can't believe we finished 30 episodes. Who would have thought? I would be amiss if I did not thank my listeners, my financial supporters who have monthly subscriptions to this podcast, and my incredible guests who have shared so generously of their life lessons and their stories. This concludes Season 3. I will bring to you the first episode of Season 4 in two weeks on Wednesday, October 14th. Until then, be happy, be safe, and be well.